is wonderful to be here with you tonight. I see so many people that I have missed and that I love so much, um, and new faces too, so I would, I would love to meet you if I haven't gotten to, um, but I'm so thankful for this opportunity to um, open the Word of God with you and to study our great God together. Um, if you will forgive me a little bit of housekeeping, I want to make a blanket um, acknowledgement of all the people that I read because I can't tell you where all the stuff came from that I'm going to say, but I can tell you it's not original to me. Um, I got it from other people, so um, cobbled together in my way, but I did also want to plug a couple of the things that I read in preparation for this. One of them is um, this book, None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God by Matthew Barrett. It is excellent. It's so good, and it is an accessible read. It is not hard to read um, compared with many of the books in my husband's library. It's excellent. So I wanted to tell you that as one. Um, another one that I read is God Without Passions by um, Samuel Renahan. This one is, is kind of builds one particular doctrine of God, um, and I'll, I'll lean on him pretty heavily when I get to that section tonight. Um, and then I also um, listened to many sermons and lectures by James Dolezal on the doctrine of God. Um, they're all really good. Um, and then I also uh, raided my husband's library for commentaries and all kinds of things like that. So this is my blanket acknowledgement that go find other people, they're better. <laughs> and, um, but I'm going to try to put these things together for you. Um, if you'll turn with me to our passage for this weekend in the book of Colossians, chapter 3. And um, as you're turning there, I would ask for your patience as I unfold this particular um, session this evening. Because um, it may sound at the beginning like, what on earth does this have to do with the idea of compassion, which seems to be kind of the the goal of where we're going. I promise it's related. I'm getting there. It's going to take me a while to build that. Um, but I, I want to start by looking at who God is and, um, and taking just a glimpse of who he is together. Um, and then I'll, I'll relate it when I get to the end, I promise. But um, if you'll look with me at Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your good and holy word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, 
the revelation of God to men. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity to join together as women and to, um, to study who you are and who you call us to be. I pray that you would bless our time together, Lord, that you would um, minister your word to my heart and to these ladies' hearts tonight. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, so if you'll look back at verse 12 with me, um, it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones. Who is God? We read all through scripture his name, but who is he? A.W. Tozer said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But we should not think that just because it comes into our minds, it is true of who he is. We must turn to his word and see, is this the idea I have in my mind? Is it consistent with what God says and who he says that he is? Because that's what really matters. Who does God say that he is? And so I have a daunting task in front of me tonight. I'm going to give us, as if I can, a brief glimpse into who God is but it's doomed to failure at the beginning because God is incomprehensible. The finite cannot contain the infinite. And so my words can never explain God. And when we're done tonight, maybe, if the Lord is gracious, we'll see God a little more clearly but compared with who he is, our sight of him will be infinitely small. Because God is incomprehensible. In case that's a big word for you like it is for me, let me explain it this way. And this is a, I'm borrowing this illustration. Um, if you were to travel to California and visit the Redwoods, which is something I have on my bucket list, um, but just imagine, have you ever seen pictures of the redwoods? you know how big those things are? All right, now walk up and hug one. Your arm's going to reach? No, it's incomprehensible. You cannot fit your arms around it. But you can put your hands on it. You can actually apprehend it. You can know something about it that's true. Even though you cannot encompass and the same is true with God, though we will never exhaust what there is to learn about who God is. And I do mean the word never. We can know him truly, and we can see him truly, and we can know more and more about who he is. And so I wanted to begin by reminding you of this truth. We cannot contain him is beyond our expression. But as we look at who God is, I wanted to begin with simply this. God is. I think that truth is the one that has settled into my heart the very most of all the things that I studied. Today, God is. If you look at 
um, or you, you can look or you can just listen. I'm going to go through a lot of passages, so turn if you want to. Otherwise, don't worry about it. But Exodus 3, verse 14, you remember the story when Moses sees the burning bush and God is sending him back to the Egyptians, um, to Pharaoh, to speak to Pharaoh and to um, tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And Moses says to him in verse 13 of Exodus 3, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. God is. And that means he has the power of being within himself. He is independent. He does not depend on anyone or anything for who he is. And that is very good news to finite creatures. Because if an infinite God depends on you in order to be God, he is not God, nor can he ever be satisfied. But instead, God is independent. He simply is. He is being, not becoming. We are created. We are receivers with potential to become. To become. God has no potential. He is already. And he is of himself. He is self-wise, self-divine self-attesting, self-excellent. All that he is, he is of himself with no need for anything beyond himself. He's independent. And this is good news for us. That is not all we know about who God is. We also know that God is one, or this is called simple. God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. As we go through scripture and we learn more, we learn that God is eternally three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when God reveals himself, he begins by teaching us that he is one. And so when we study God, we must start there too, or we'll make errors in who he is. We have to understand that God is one. So when we talk about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it is not as though the Father is part of God and the Son is part of God and the Holy Spirit is part of God. God has no parts. Otherwise, he would be dependent on those parts to be God. So an illustration of this. Um, any of you guys have sons with Legos? You know those little Lego men, right? You can get all kinds of Lego men. You can even get, like, girl Legos that are, like, Lego elves and things like that. And um, the, the thing that Legos, as little people, have in common is that, you know, they have a head and they have a body and they have the little legs. Some of them have hands that come on and off. They have something in common. They're all, they all have Lego personness, right? Um, but they're dependent on their parts. If you begin to pull them apart, eventually you don't have a Lego anymore right? To be a Lego man, it's dependent on its parts. This is what is true of all creatures. We're dependent on parts to make up 
who and what we are, right? God is not like that. God is one. He is simple. And we don't mean that as in simplistic or easy to understand. We mean simple as in all that is in God is God. He is one. He subsists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he is one, not three, in who he is, in his essence. Three persons, one God, in essence. But we don't just talk about the persons of who God is. We often speak of wonderful truths about our God that we call his attributes. And we say that God is love and God is holy. God is just God is wise, but God is not the sum of all that he is. It is not as though God has wisdom and God has justice and God has love. No, all that is in God is God. God is love. God is holy. God is wise. God is just. And his love is his holiness, is his justice, is his wisdom. It's all one in his essence in who God is. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. If God has these attributes, then he is dependent on them to be who he is. But no, God is. And we as creatures look at him and distinguish these different things. But he is one. He's infinite. God is without limit. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And you could go through verse after verse after verse looking at our God who cannot be measured. But think about this in his infinity. In, in his infinitude, he's without limit in all respects. Go back to that redwood tree. It's huge around. But let's just say that we've happened upon a magical redwood tree. And this one has a height so high, no one can find it. It would be limitless in its height. But it would still only be limitless in one respect. God is limitless in all respects. You cannot find the edge of who he is. He is unbounded. Something can be unlimited in size, but that's different from being unlimited in essence. Augustine said that God is that being than whom none greater can be thought or imagined. That's where Matthew Barrett gets the name of his book none greater. He is that being than whom none greater can be imagined. So take your mind as far out as you can go, and you're still only looking at the limits of size. God is limitless in everything that he is. He is fullness of being itself, the absolute plentitude of reality upon which all else depends. That's Anselm's statement. If we can think of anything that would limit God, it must not be true of him. He is limitless in all that he is. 
He has limitless power, limitless knowledge, wisdom. He is most wise, most holy, most good. If you think about what most is, if you're less than most, you're not most. And if you're more than most, you weren't most to begin with, right? He is most of all that he is. As much as you can imagine, he's more. He's limitless in his power, in his graciousness, in his understanding, in his wisdom, in his justice, in his love. There is no edge. And with those things, it also follows that God is unchanging. Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. And many other verses say the same thing. God does not change. We sang it in Great is Thy Faithfulness. There is no shadow of turning. There is no shadow in God. He does not change. And that makes sense. If you have a God who is not dependent on anything but himself, and if he is fullness of being, and if he is one, then he cannot change. Otherwise, he was not already the most, right? If he were to grow in his love, he didn't already have all love. If he were to diminish in his love, he is no longer all love. He is all that he is to infinitude, and he does not change. In a world that changes constantly, that is a firm foundation. God does not change. He is not one thing today and another thing tomorrow. God is yesterday, today, forever. He is. He is the God who does not change. And this is the reason that we can trust his promises. He's not going to tell us, I will save you to the uttermost today and tomorrow say, never mind. We can trust that the one who began a good work in us will complete it. We can trust that the God who forgives doesn't go back on his word. We can trust that he is who he says he is all the time when sometimes we can barely figure out who we are. We don't have to guess about who he is. He tells us, and he tells us in his graciousness that he does not change. This is also why we can be confident that he will remain good. He is not going to suddenly become an evil God. He's good. And an all-powerful, infinite being that can change and become not good is terrifying. But an all-powerful, infinite, all-good being who does not change is hope in life and in death. And this is our God. He does not change. And then he is impassable. And I'm going to sit down on this one for a little bit because it's the one that sounds the strangest to us these days. And I think it's important for us to understand it because there's a lot of comfort in it. 
So what does it mean to say that God is impassable? It means that God is without passions. I'm about to argue that God is not passionate about you. And I'm going to borrow James Dolezal's words and say, I know that sounds strange. I know I'm talking to women. We're not exactly known for being passionless. And for me to tell you that God is not passionate about you could sound very odd. Um, but hold the rotten tomatoes. Um, <laughs> if when I'm done you want to throw them, you can. Um, but this is a, it's a foundational truth, and it's a confessional truth that God is without passions. And until about 200 years ago, it was a truth that was widely confessed by all believers. In fact, to say that God had passions would have been, would have been considered the height of impiety or ungodliness. To say that God is without passions was confessed by all denominations, including Catholics, about who God is. So Protestant, Roman Catholic, it didn't matter. God is without passions was how they understood God to be. Um, but lest you think that by saying God does not have passions, I'm telling you God does not care about you, that is not what I mean. He cares because he doesn't have passions. So let me explain. A passion is a change in emotion from one state to another due to an internal or external cause. Therefore, a passion is necessarily a response to something. I'm going to say that again. A passion is a change in emotion from one state to another due to an internal or external cause. Therefore, a passion is necessarily a response to something. So you're all sitting here very calmly. If I were to throw cold water on you, you would probably experience a passion, right? You would go from sitting calmly to, ah, right? Um, this is what a passion is. It's a change in state, right? The difficulty comes in in understanding this because Scripture speaks in multiple ways. And so I want to show you the different ways that God speaks in Scripture that have made this even a question. I've already been arguing God doesn't change, so for me to tell you that he doesn't change in his emotions may not sound as odd as it could. Um, but there are multiple kinds of passage, passages that describe God that we need to talk about. The first is that some passages of Scripture describe God in terms of our human emotions and experiences. For instance... Genesis 6, 6 to 7. And the Lord God regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Do you hear the words of human emotion in that passage? Regret, grief, repenting, sorrow, Certainly sounds like God has gone from one state to another, doesn't it? Deuteronomy 9, 7 to 8. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. 
And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. Again, wrath, anger, describing what God is doing. So some passages of scripture describe God in terms of our human emotions and experiences. But others tell us that these very emotional experiences are not in God. Listen to Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So, some passages speak of God in terms of human emotions, and others speak of him as not being capable of those experiences. And still other passages tell us that there are things about who God is that make it impossible for him to experience a passion or a change in emotion. Remember, a passion is a change in state, an emotional change that can happen from within or be caused from without. But several scripture passages teach us that that is not possible for God to go through. And the Second London Baptist Confession, which is the Confession of Morning View, states this as well. Listen to the confession and then we'll go to scripture. The Second London Confession, chapter 2, paragraph 1 says, The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, do you hear that? In and of himself, that was our beginning, independence, infinite in being, limitless, and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. So your confession makes the statement, but what does it mean, and how do we get there? So let's keep going through scripture, and let's look at Exodus 3, 13 to 14. We already read this, but we're going to read it again. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God is being, he simply is. Again, that means he cannot experience a change in state, otherwise he is becoming. But this is not what scripture teaches. It says that he is. And then Acts 14, 15 is a fascinating passage. In this passage, um, you'll remember that There were apostles who um, had done miracles, and the people decided that they were some of the gods of Olympus come down off the mountain, um, and they were going to worship them as gods. But they stopped them with these words, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. When he says, we also are men of like nature, the old King James translates it like 
passions with you. So in other words, the way to stop people from worshiping you as though you're a god, according to the apostles, is to tell them, don't worship us, we are of like passions with you. In other words, a passionate being is not one worthy of worship, which would also exclude all those gods on Mount Olympus, wouldn't it? (laughs) Right? And so this is the answer. We worship a God who is not passionate. That is, he does not go through emotional change. Right? The implication of their statement to the crowds is that only a being who is not passionate is worthy of worship. This is the only being who could be the creator. Passions are of necessity creaturely and changing. So what do we do with the interpretation of these passages? Well, there are a couple of principles that we have to remember. The first principle is that passages that describe God's being get priority in telling us who God is over passages that describe his actions. Okay, so if if God in his revelation is describing his actions in one passage and he describes them as change or regret or repentance, and in another passage God is revealing something about himself and he says, I, the Lord God, I am not a man that I should lie or repent or have regret, I do not change, that passage where God tells you about himself has to control how you read ones where he tells you about what he's doing. Okay, so when God tells us about himself, it controls how we read passages that tell us about what he is doing. Um, The Bible is communicating always truth about God to us, but it's also always using human language. And human language will always fall short of describing the infinite God. It doesn't mean that what God is saying is not true, but it does mean that the language God is using to describe himself is not equal to himself. We have to understand the language we're reading by way of analogy. Here's what I mean. I can tell you that we had a good supper. I can tell you that I have a good dog, which I don't. Uh, I don't have any dogs. Um, And I can tell you that God is good. Now, is good a correct word to use in all of those statements? Does it communicate something true? Yes. And yet, our supper and a dog and the infinite God are vastly different things, right? So God speaks to us. He condescends to lisp to us in his word using human language because it's the only way for us to understand anything about him. So what God communicates in scripture is always true of him, but it is also by analogy, right? And so when God speaks of himself as acting in ways that look like regret, he is speaking to us in terms of human action, right? God created men, then he destroyed them in the flood. Looks like a change of action, right? And it is a change in action, but it's not a change inside who God is. That's the difference. 
right? God made Saul king, and then he took the kingdom from Saul. He regretted that he had made Saul king. And then later in the exact same passage, he says he's not a man that he should have regret, right? Well, what is regret? It's, it's a, in a human terms, regret's an emotion that I'm sorry that I did that, and it might cause us to change our action, right? So God is speaking to us. We can understand what it is to go, I did this, and now I'm going to do something different. We understand that, but it doesn't mean that God inside himself had any other change of anything. This was always what his plan was. We just saw it in time unfold. It is not as though he inside himself went, oh no, Saul's done something I didn't know he was going to do, and now I'm sorry I made him king. That's not what happened, right? Because that would be a change in God, as though God is discovering each event and evaluating it and responding to it internally, he is not. God's revelation of himself always condescends to our creaturely understanding and ability, and it is never false, but it is always by way of analogy. Sam Renahan said this, we can no more contain God in our language than you can contain the ocean in a thimble. We cannot comprehend an infinite God, but we can apprehend him. We cannot know him fully, but we can know him truly. And we know him through his word, understanding that he is condescending to speak to us in human language. Right? So there's a difference then between who God is in himself and the unfolding of what God has decreed in time and space. God is one simple being, remember? Therefore, his decree is simple. His decree is the one God willing. We experience it as time goes on. We experience various aspects. But God is one. And so the effects of this one God acting are numerous. But he is the one actor. He is one. He does not change inside himself. So if the Bible tells us God regrets, and it also tells us that man, God is not a man to repent or change, then what on earth is it teaching us? And the answer is in this doctrine of impassibility that I'm trying to unpack with you a little bit tonight. To say that God is without passions is to deny something creaturely in God. Okay? And actually many of what, all of the ways we've been looking at God deny something creaturely of him. We said God is incomprehensible. He cannot be comprehended. He is independent, without dependence on any one or thing. He is simple or without parts. He is infinite, without finitude or without limits. He is unchanging, means he is without change. And he is impassable, means that he is without passions. We are denying things that are creaturely of God. It is like us to go from one state to another, from one emotion to another, to swing from high to low and back again, right? From warm toward God to cold toward God, right? It is like us to swing from extreme to extreme or sometimes to sit coldly in the middle and have no response of emotion, even when we maybe should. This is creaturely, but God is not like this. He is without passions. He is not of like passion with us. So does this mean then, like I said, that God does not care? 
No, actually, it means that he is fullness of care. Remember, he's all love. He is impassionate in that he does not change, but he is not cold and impassioned and impassionate. He is fully loving, fully caring, fully wise to infinity without change. And that is really good news. A God who changes is a God who's not worthy of worship. A God who goes through emotional states from one to another in response to his creation is no one to be trusted, no one to be loved. But no, God is not like this. He is infinite. And we say that he does not have passions, but he does have perfections. He does not have passions, but he does have perfections. He is perfect. Perfect can also mean complete. So he has completions or perfections. We say that God is love, he is holy, he is just. Each of these are his perfections. He is, again, limitless to what they are. He is perfect in all that he is. Sam Renahan says this, rather than giving us a picture of an apathetic, uncaring God of whom we know nothing and cannot possibly relate to, we see divine, unchanging perfections which become the very foundation for our running to God. I can wake up every day and go to sleep every night knowing that when I cry out to God, I am crying out to the God who is love, who is merciful, who is kind, and who will not change. He is all that he is, and he does not increase or decrease his maximum of being. He is pure act, fully actualized mercy, fully actualized love, fully actualized kindness, fully actualized justice. He is not growing in these things, nor is he decreasing in them. He is fully them. This is the God who is. He is one in all of who he is. We are distinguishing among his perfections here in talking about his love, his justice, his mercy, his grace, but he is one in all of those things. They are not things that make up God. They are not things he depends on. They are who he is. And time and creation act like a prism that splinters the one God into these many perfections that we see and talk about. You know how white light enters a prism and splits into the spectrum that we call the rainbow? So the one God who is all that he is, as we experience him through time and creation, we see various kinds of actions from our perspective. But he's the one God in his essence. He does not change. And so does this mean then that he is static and stoic 
and uncaring. How on earth can this God, who never changes, show compassion to creatures in their need? Well, let me give you an example. Again, I'm borrowing from Matthew Barrett, but I thought it was a very good example. So let's say that um, your home catches on fire, right? And you're yelling for everybody to get out. You think everybody's gotten out. You get into the yard. You start counting people, and you realize that there is still a child left in the house, and it is, it is an inferno, and you cannot get back in. And neighbors are gathering and what's going on. And you're telling them, my child is still in there. And so in sympathy, someone who wants to show sympathy and feel with you begins screaming uncontrollably and tearing their hair out and saying, oh, no, oh, no. And they're just a mass of emotion. And you go, what on earth? And then someone else wanting to understand the pain of those who are suffering grabs gasoline and pours it on himself and lights it so he can feel the pain of this other person. And you go, what has happened to my neighbors? This is not what I need. And then a fireman comes, and he has his fire suit, and he is calm, and he is collected, and he knows exactly what to do, and he does not either have to cry and scream with you or feel the pain of those who are suffering to enter that house and deliver them. A God who is not passionate is a God who can rescue because he is unmoved. He is the unmoved mover, full of compassion and mercy and help to those who are in need because he isn't changing from one state to another with us. This is precisely why we can cry out to him for help and know that we will receive it. God does not change inside of himself. He's not incited to reaction. He is action. Some have accused that a God who is pure being, pure giver, pure actor, and is not moved by his creatures cannot actually care for them or relate to them. But as our story already showed, he does not have to feel our experience in himself to know how to deliver us from this world into the next. In his deity, he does not have to experience it. And this is our great comfort. So by way of application, his compassions fail not. This is strength to live. This is a sure foundation to build your life on. I'm reminded of the story that Jesus told of the wise man and the foolish man. The foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when winds and waves came, it crashed. But the wise man built his house on a rock and it stood firm. You can build your life on a God who does not change. And it will not be shaken. Not ultimately. That's what Hebrews teaches us. We have this great comfort in a God who is the same. Yesterday and today and forever. We can really say this God 
his compassions do not fail. This is the one God whom we worship. But is this God so big that I can't know him or that he would not notice me? To say that would be to limit God. The limitless God knows his creatures. And he knows how to love them. And he knows how to save them. And he knows how to keep them. And how to take them all the way into his presence and glory. There is no limit to this God that we worship. And so, we need to put on then as God's chosen ones. Who is this God? He's incomprehensible, independent, infinite, simple, unchanging, impassionate, perfect. And he's the one who has called us in his son. But there's one more question that gets raised. What does one sin do in the sight of an infinite God? It makes us infinitely guilty. But how will we be reconciled to a God like this who is so different from us, who is a whole other kind of being, an order of being before whom we are sinful. There's a Christ who came. This God, this infinite God put on flesh and dwelt among us so we could know him. So we could see him so our hands could handle him so that we could understand the word of of life. This God, Jesus, has explained him. And in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. What a God we have. What a God we worship. So may I encourage you to build your life on this God. If you haven't looked to Christ for salvation from your sins, go to him. He is limitless in his forgiveness. If you have not come to him to fear him and trust him and live for him, he receives sinners. And then you can build your life on this sure foundation And know that this limitless God has all power to forgive your sins and overcome them so that all that is left one day is what is good. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved compassionate hearts. Let's pray together. God, you are 
we can be still because you are. Lord, I pray that you would help us to worship you in truth. Lord, I pray that you would form our minds according to the God who is and not according to a God of our own imagination. Help us, Lord, as we go this evening to worship in spirit and in truth with great confidence that we can build our lives on you and you will not fail. I pray these things in Jesus' name.